2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I want to begin this morning just reading verses 17 and verse 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's go before our God and let's ask him to help us this morning. Father, we now come to this portion of our service where we open up your word and I seek to explain it. But Lord, we need spiritual eyes today. We need the Spirit of God indwelling us to cause us to see the wonderful realities of the new covenant. Lord, I ask that you would help me in spite of all my inability and weakness to bring forth the word of life and proclaim it with clarity and with conviction for those here this morning who are blinded to the glories of Christ, cause them to be born again today. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. 2 Corinthians 3 is where we're at today, and I think it's a helpful or a corresponding passage to where we're at in Romans 7. I didn't preach in there because Pastor Jess is in the middle of that text, and the way he's going through it, I I couldn't really just jump into the middle of it. As is usual, this microphone and me are not getting along. I don't know what's wrong with it. Maybe that's better. If it's dangling, just ignore it. Uh, It's so uncomfortable. But anyway, does that work? Is that better? Can you tell? I don't know. No? This happens every time. It either misforms my ear or the microphone misforms it or whatever. I hope you're getting a good chuckle inside. 2 Corinthians 3 is a helpful corresponding passage to Romans 7 because it's dealing with many of the same issues that Paul is in Romans 7, but perhaps from a little bit different angle than what Paul is doing. In Romans 7, you'll recall that Paul is dealing specifically with our relationship to the law, and it's very personal in many ways as Paul is talking about what the law has done to him. He's describing the purpose, what it looked like in his life, and in short, he says that the law exposes sin. He says in Romans 7, verse 7, had it, that, that the law is not sin, but had it not been for the law, I would have not known sin. He says in chapter 7 and verse 9, when the law came, sin came alive and I died. And then verse 12, what he's saying is that the law is not sin in itself, but it's simply exposing what is already in the heart. So in both Romans 7 and in 2 Corinthians 3, and in many other places in the New Testament, the law is shown to be enslaving, binding, and condemning. It never, ever saves. Over and over, this argument is made throughout the the New Testament. The law has no power to free a sinner from the sin, from their sin. It only serves to show their sin. It shows that they are a sinner. But for those who are united to Christ, we are not under the rule or the captivity or the dominion of the law. That's the good news of the gospel. The sin which the law exposes is fully and finally dealt with through Jesus' perfect righteousness and his atoning sacrifice. His work is now credited or imputed to our account. 
So this sets us free from that bondage. Paul's made that very clear back in Romans chapter 6 and in Romans chapter 7. In Romans 7 verse 6, he says, We have died to that which held us captive, so we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. It's that language, serving in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code, is what really draws my attention to 2 Corinthians 3 today. And this is still, give me one second. I'm sorry. Satan has attacked the microphone. There, maybe better, I don't know. It's that language from Romans 7, verse 6, that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul is referencing the new covenant and what we have been given and what we are now under through Jesus Christ. And that's what 2 Corinthians 3 is all about. It's about the surpassing glory of the new covenant and the new people it is creating. So there's four points that I want to make this morning from this, from this passage, and we're going to try and cover the whole thing. Uh, four points that we're going we're gonna to look at. The first is, in verses 1 through 6, a glorious new letter. A glorious new letter. The second is in verses 7 through, letter, 7 through 11, the surpassing glory of the new covenant. Verses 12 through 16, we will see that we, those who are blinded to glory. And then in verses 17 and 18, transformed by glory. I will touch on those again as we come to each one. But read with me, first of all, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. A glorious new letter. Paul begins this chapter with this question. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? And here it's probably helpful to have a little bit of historical context to the, to the letter and to Paul's statement here. 2 Corinthians is Paul's fourth letter to this church. He wrote one letter that was lost to history. Then there was 1 Corinthians, which was actually the second letter. And then there was a letter written between 1 and 2 Corinthians that Paul sent by Titus when he couldn't return to Corinth as he had originally planned. He wanted to go, but he was prevented, so he sends a letter with Titus. And then he writes this fourth and final letter, which is really preparing the Corinthians for his coming to them again, because they were a little hurt in some ways. They thought Paul had been disingenuous or lied to them in some way when he hadn't returned as he had planned. And so he's kind of preparing his way to come to them. He's dealing with some wrong perceptions of them. You can see that in chapter 1 and verse 17. Now, you'll remember if you go back to 1 Corinthians and you're familiar with that book, that Paul talks about his ministry. And it wasn't marked by 
eloquence of words, persuasiveness of speech. He wasn't a great orator. Rather, he says, I came to you in weakness, right? He was not probably the the greatest speaker of the day, and this was an issue, in a sense, for the church at Corinth, right? This was a church that was divided. You remember in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3, really, he's dealing with this division over leaders in the church, right? Some saying, I follow Paul, Others saying, I follow Apollos, and some super spiritual saying, well, I follow Christ. Of course, there is a, uh, some, some problems in this, in this church. And so Paul had to defend his apostolic authority, that he had been sent out by Christ. And at the same time, he's fending off objections from the Corinthians who are going, oh, Paul, you're sounding a little proud right now. Settle it down, right? He's having to fend off all of this while defending himself. And so, as Paul prepares to return again, he's asking this rhetorical question in chapter 3 and verse 1, saying, do you really need a letter of recommendation for us? Do you think that we're commending ourselves to you now, trying to make ourselves look good in your eyes? This is a bit of a ridiculous question that the Corinthians would have to, would be posing, or that Paul is having to, 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 fend off their objection, thinking that Paul is putting himself forward too much. And the reason why is because Paul is is a spiritual father to this church, right? It is under his ministry that people responded to the gospel. They were changed by the gospel that that he preached. So Paul's point is, you don't need a letter from another group. You don't need another church or some apostles commending me in my ministry. Now, I don't need to commend my ministry to you, and the reason why is this, because you are my letter of recommendation. That's what he says in verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Paul is saying that the Corinthians' response to the gospel that he preached, their corresponding change of life, the evidence of their belief in the gospel— was a recommendation of Paul's new covenant ministry. This ministry he'd been, he had been given. But the Corinthians, notice in verse 3, they're a letter, but they're not written by Paul, and they're not written by themselves. Who are they written by? Christ. You are a letter written by Christ. You are a letter from Christ. And then Paul goes and he uses this language in the second half of verse 3 that is straight from Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, the promises of the new covenant. What does he say? You are a letter from Christ written with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What Paul is saying to this church, he's saying that you are living in And you are experiencing what God has always promised to do in the hearts of his people. Right? The Lord had always promised to send his spirit who would indwell his people. And he would write their laws upon his heart. And he would cause them to obey his word and walk in his ways. That's the promise of the new covenant. And Paul is saying you are that letter of recommendation. You are a letter declaring that this new covenant has come. He's saying, in effect, your new covenant life is a letter to everyone else of the glorious new age that is dawned in Christ, 
and of the ministry he has made me sufficient for. Paul hasn't made himself sufficient for it. This is a work that God has done, and he has made him sufficient for this. Every Christian is what Paul is saying the Corinthians are. I think as a church, we need to understand that, right? We are a letter from Christ to be known and read by all. Our lives are declaring that a glorious new age has come, the age of the new covenant. And now I want you to look at verse 6. Paul is describing how he has been made a minister of the new covenant. And then he says what the new covenant is and what it is not. And I want you to notice again there's a connection here to Romans 7. So he says in verse 6, He has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So notice these connections. Not of the letter, for the letter kills. Well, Romans 7 verse 5, Paul says, Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The letter kills. Romans 7 verse 6, We were held captive under the law. Or verses 9 through 11, when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Paul saying we've been given a ministry, but it's not a ministry of death. It's not a ministry of the letter. What is it? Well, the new covenant is of the spirit. The Spirit gives life. That's what he's saying in verse 6. And again, there's a connection to Romans 7. Romans 7 and verse 4, Paul says, you, so that you may belong to another, to him who has raised, been raised from the dead. Here's life. The new covenant is a ministry of life, not death. Or 6, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the letter. So the first thing that I want us to notice in these first six verses is that with the coming of the new covenant, the people of God testify through their transformed lives that this new age is upon us. The people of God testify through their transformed lives that this new age is upon us. So we have a new letter. Look at verse 7 down through verse 11. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Here we see the surpassing glory of the new covenant. In these verses, just like Paul does in Romans 7, he's not saying that the law, the old covenant given to Israel was bad, that there was any fault in it. The problem, though, was with the hearers, right, with the responders to the law. They were the ones that were at fault. The fault was with them. And so Paul shows that, yes, there was glory under the Old Covenant, and we'll look at this in just just a minute, 
but it's surpassed by a far greater glory under the new covenant. There's quite a comparison and contrast, and maybe you noticed it when we were reading here, but listen to these phrases that he uses to describe the old covenant. In verse 7, he calls it a ministry of death. He says there as well that it's carved in letters of stone. He says that it's being brought to an end. In verse 9, he says this is a ministry of condemnation. Verse 10, it had glory, but it's come to have no glory at all. Verse 11, it's being brought to an end. This is the old covenant. In contrast, though, the new covenant, look at what he says about it. In verse 8, he calls it a ministry of the Spirit, not a ministry of death. It has even more glory, in verse 8, than the ministry of death had. In verse 9, it's a ministry of righteousness, not of condemnation. In verse 9, it has exceeding glory. In verse 10, surpassing glory. And in verse 11, permanent glory. This is the age of the new covenant that has come to us. Now, Paul is using here a historical event to demonstrate this contrast, and it's, that's why I had Aaron read Exodus 34. Maybe as you've read these verses already, you've seen that connection in what he's doing. But I think, again, a brief history lesson is, is helpful here. If you remember your, your Old Testament Bible stories, you remember that in the book of Exodus, the Lord brings the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Right? They've been enslaved there for 400 years. The Lord delivers them out, uses all those plagues, and then brings them through the Red Sea to a specific place, to Mount Sinai. Remember, that's what the Lord said, I will meet my people there at Mount Sinai. And there at the mountain, he spoke to the people. He spoke out of the mountain the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. And remember to the people, it was terrifying to hear the voice of God. It was a terrifying scene as God descends upon the mountain and there's lightning and thunder and smoke and fire. And there's that warning given, if anybody touches the mountain, they'll die, right? So there's a perimeter set up around the mountain. But even before the Lord gives the Ten Commandments, which we read in Exodus 20, and then the rest of the commands through chapter 23, in response to what the Lord had done and what he'd promised to do, he brought them out of Israel and he promised to bring them to a good land. The people promised to do something. They said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. All right, they made a promise. Okay, God, whatever you say, we're your people, we're going to do it because of what you've done for us. So the Lord gives them the commands in Exodus 20 and following. And then in Exodus 24, they enter into a covenant with the Lord. And there they take upon themselves the responsibility to obey the covenant. You want to know why there's so many, uh, why there's a judgment that falls upon the people of Israel over and over? They broke the covenant. They said, we'll do this. And they disobeyed and they received the, the punishment the Lord had said they would receive. Well, after Exodus 24, just a few chapters later, what happens? The people demonstrate their inability to keep the covenant, don't they? They go and they build themselves a golden calf, and they attribute to this calf deliverance, right? They're saying, here, O Israel, is your gods that have led you up out of slavery. Moses is up on the mountain. He comes down from the mountain from receiving the law of God on the tablets of stone. He looks around and sees this whole scene, and what does he do? Throws the tablets to the ground, and they are broken. 
Well, he goes and he judgment is meted out on the people, right? He grinds up that calf and he forces them to drink the water. And then Moses goes back up to the mountain and intercedes for the people, but he does it on behalf of the character of God, right? This is where he says, he says, don't destroy this people because of your own character, Lord. And then in chapter 34, and I know Pastor Jess spent a lot of time in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, because they're so crucial to understand who God is. But Moses asks that question. He asks the Lord, let me see your glory. And the Lord's response is, no man can see my face and live. So what does the Lord do? He says, Moses, I won't let you see my full glory, but I will let you see my backside. So he takes Moses and he puts him into the cleft of the rock and he puts his hand over him and he passes before him. And we read earlier in in, uh, Exodus chapter 34, the Lord proclaiming his name to Moses. So after 40 days in the mountain, Moses comes back down. His face is glowing, like we read this morning. His face is glowing. The people are afraid to come near to him. And so from then on, Moses' face is always veiled whenever he's before the people. Except for when he goes in before the Lord, the veil is removed. But whenever he's before the people, his face is veiled. And so this is the historical context that Paul is referencing in 2 Corinthians 3, and he's going to make some application to it. Now, if you think about that, that's really a pretty glorious scene, isn't it? Right? Moses' face is physically glowing from seeing the glory of the Lord. Or there's this beautiful scene in Exodus 24 after the people enter into a covenant with the Lord and the elders go up on the mountain and it says there they beheld the glory of God and they ate and they drank with him, right? Here's this wonderful picture of the glory of God and enjoying it. But Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3 that all of that, as glorious as it was with the coming of the new covenant, it is as if it had absolutely no glory at all. There's absolutely no glory in the old covenant because in the new covenant with Christ, the coming of Christ, it is of such a greater glory. Now, when we talk about glory, it's one of those Christian words, right, that we, we, we use all the time, but we don't always know how to define it, right? If I were to say, could you define for me what we t- mean when we talk about glory, could you do it? Maybe after this you can, if you can't, right? Okay, here's two things I think that you need to think about when you think about the glory of God. The first is weightiness. The glory of God is weighty. And the second is, is that it is the full outshining of all God's character and attributes. The weight of God's glory is like we see in Isaiah 6. Remember in Isaiah 6, Isaiah goes into, has a vision of the throne room, and he sees there the seraphim, one calling to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What's Isaiah's response? Woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The glory of God is weighty because it shows us our sin. 
The glory of God is weighty because it shows us our filth, our uncleanliness. The second aspect and the other reason why the glory of God is weighty is because it is the outshining of his perfect holiness, his perfect character, and all of his perfect attributes. Not to go too far ahead of myself, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and this is where we're going to end in a few moments, in verse 6, Paul writes, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying there is that in Jesus, we have the fullest and final revelation of God's glory. You want to see the glory of God? You look to Jesus. You behold Jesus. Listen to John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You want to see and behold the glory of God, you do it in Jesus. Or Hebrews 1 verse 3, Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the new covenant has come. And even though there was glory under the old covenant, the glory that comes with the new covenant is so far surpassing so that it is as if the old covenant had no glory at all. The new covenant is surpassing glory. So this moves us then to verse 12. And here Paul is going to talk about why are some people blinded to it, right? If it's this tremendous glory that has come, how come some people just don't get it? Why don't people respond to it? So look at Verse 12 down through verse 16. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So verses 12 through 16, blinded to glory. He says in verse 12 that the the permanence of the glory of the new covenant produces two things, hope and boldness. We have this hope and boldness because we now see what was the outcome of what was being brought to an end, right? The end of the old covenant brought about what? The new. Brought about Jesus. The full forgiveness of sins through him. The indwelling spirit of God. The promise of the future resurrection and glorification forever, right? So with the end of the old covenant, the outcome of that is the new and all the promises of it. So we can have hope, right? Hope is not that wishful thinking, but what is it? Confidence, a confident expectation of future good. You think the Old Testament saints, they didn't have this kind of hope because they didn't see the full outcome like we do. Their hope was in God, 
and their hope was in the new covenant he would one day bring. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, so he's talking about what we've received in Christ, this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours or ours through Christ, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, but us, right? They looked forward and they saw, we don't get that yet. That's coming. So we trust, we believe what God is going to do and that it's going to come one day. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. So we now have hope. We have confident expectation of future good because we have received in fullness the outcome of what has come to an end in the old covenant. So this hope we have, it produces boldness. More literally, this could be translated actually boldness of speech. So Paul is coming to the Corinthians and he's saying, hey, I can boldly proclaim to you the glories of Christ, the new covenant, because it has come. I have hope. I have confident expectation of what is yet to come. And so Paul does this, right? He proclaims the glories of the new covenant in spite of intense opposition from the Jews, right? What was the Jews' response always to to the gospel preached was, oh no, the new covenant hasn't come. Oh no, Jesus is not the promised Messiah right? The law is still in effect in that way. Anytime we proclaim the gospel, we're proclaiming the glories of this new covenant. We're saying a new age is dawned in Christ. But yet, this is Paul's point in these verses, there are people who are blinded to this glory. Why is that? Israel was shielded from Moses's face by a veil so they wouldn't see this radiating glory off of his face. And they did that, that was done, so that they might not think that what Moses experienced on the mountain was the ultimate glory, right? In, in essence, Moses's veiled face is saying to the nation of Israel, there is an even greater glory coming. You think it's glorious to go up on the mountain and behold the glory of God behind a rock and his hand covering you, just wait. There's so much more in Christ. And yet, when that glory comes, many are blinded to it. Many Jews and others read the Bible. They read the Old Testament. They read the New Testament. They hear the gospel proclaimed, and they don't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Their eyes are blinded to it. It's there, but yet their eyes are blinded and their hearts are hardened. Look at verse 14. Ultimately, and this is why we emphasize so much here at Calvary, understanding the nature of our salvation. How is it that blinded eyes become open? It's really crucial that we understand that. It's a work of God. Verse 14, only through Christ is the veil taken away. Some of you this morning may be blinded to this glory. You may not be beholding Christ. Maybe you think you are, but you aren't truly saved. 
The scriptures tell us, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So I, exhor- I call you to see Jesus this morning. If you think about it, every part of our service has been pointing to him. We've sung his praises as our redeemer. We've confessed our sinfulness. We heard in James 4 this call, be humble, repent, be wretched, mourn and weep. You're a sinner and you can't save yourself. That's every person in this room. So to Jesus, we've sung of Jesus, the friend of sinners, where he's saying over and over, look to Jesus. Mercy flows through him alone, through none other. If you're not looking to Jesus, you don't have any mercy from God. We've rejoiced in the salvation we have in him. We sang in uh, uh, the last song, And Can It Be? Died he for me who caused his pain for me. To him did death pursue amazing love. How can it be? That's the hope of the gospel. So you're called this morning to look to Jesus, to turn to him. So the veil may be removed from your eyes. So sinner who is blinded to Christ, I implore you, look to Jesus. See how Jesus dies for sinners like you and turn to him now in faith, trusting in no other, trusting only in him. Be no longer blinded to him. That's the call of the gospel. So this leads us to the last two verses. In verses 17 and 18. For those whom the veil has been taken away, they are transformed. Verses 17 and 18, transformed by glory. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In the promise of the new covenant, the Lord said that he would place his spirit within his people and cause them to walk in his ways. Go look at Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. And he would write his law on their hearts. You know, the law, and we've seen this in Romans 7, the law never promised freedom. And and it still doesn't bring freedom. Our problem, I think largely, is that we have wrong notions of what freedom is, right? When we read verse 17 and we read the Lord is the Spirit where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. Well, we have the Spirit of God indwelling us through faith in Christ. Ephesians 1 talks about the Spirit coming and being the sign and seal of our salvation. So we have the Spirit of God and he brings freedom. But sometimes we think freedom, especially as Americans, right? Freedom is freedom to do kind of what I want. Freedom is my right to do whatever I want without anyone telling me it's wrong, right? That's, that's what June, what people celebrate in the month of June, right? I get to do whatever I want and you can't tell me it's wrong. That's not true. That's not freedom. The freedom Paul is talking about, the freedom that comes through the new covenant, that comes through the spirit of the Lord indwelling his, freed, uh, his people is a freedom not to do whatever your flesh desires because that's not freeing. That's enslaving. You are enslaved to your own desires. And ultimately, where does that lead you? To death. 
If I do whatever I want to do for the rest of my life and serve myself, I'm doomed. The freedom the new covenant brings is a freedom to obey God and the power to do so, right? The law is always standing outside condemning, saying, yeah, here is where you're wrong. Here's God's standard, but it doesn't ever empower me to do it. That's the glory of the new covenant. Here's this command, but now it's written on my heart by the Spirit, and I'm empowered and enabled to obey. So it's true what Paul says in verse 17. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, true Christian freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom from the condemnation of the law because the requirements of the law have been met in Jesus. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom from self-justification. So I don't have to, when I mess up, go like, well, it wasn't really my fault. I don't have to defend myself because Christ is my advocate and my intercessor. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and power to walk in righteousness. That's why I love, we sang earlier, uh, Come You Souls by Sin, Sin Afflicted, His commandments then become their happy choice, right? Those who have tasted. So that leads to verse 18. Here's Paul's glorious conclusion and his application. And he says this, we all behold the glory of the Lord. You think about going back to the book of Exodus. It's not just Moses on a mountain that's beholding the glory of the Lord. If you go to Exodus 24, it's not just 70 elders on a mountain beholding the glory of the Lord. We all hold the, behold the glory of the Lord, and it's not in a limited fashion. It doesn't stop. We behold the glory of the Lord. How? Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. I read this earlier. We behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want to point out a couple things from this verse. Our beholding the glory of the Lord, notice, first of all, it's a work of creation, of recreation, of new birth, right? Paul uses language that's directly from Genesis 1. Let the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts, right? So in order for us to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, it takes a work of God. It's not something we could ever do. We can't conjure that up. It's a work of God. We need God to shine the light of His glory into our hearts. Notice as well that beholding the glory of the Lord is internal, not external. Right? Moses beholds the glory of the Lord externally, whereas we have it internally. The Spirit of God shows us the glory of God. He opens our spiritual eyes to see it, eyes of faith that read the Word of God and say, this is true. Jesus is who He said He is. He is my Savior from sin. He does reveal to me all these wonderful truths and reveal to me who God is. So we behold the glory of the Lord internally, through spiritual eyes of faith, and we behold the glory of the Lord in Jesus. When the Lord passed before Moses, and we read this earlier, he proclaimed his name, 
Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In Jesus, do we not see all of these things? Mercy, grace, love, faithfulness, forgiving, sin-paying, judgment-bringing? Do we not see Jesus in all of these things? Back in verse 18, we behold the glory of the Lord, and we behold it in the face of Jesus Christ, but we behold the glory of the Lord for a purpose, to be transformed. Could the law ever bring this kind of transformation? No, it couldn't. Could it make them after the image of God? No, it could not. Didn't have the power to do so. This is new creation language that Paul is talking about, right? When we think about the new creation, we think of a future coming age when the earth is all restored and renewed. But Paul is first talking about the people who will inhabit it, right? In, in God's economy, in the first creation, he creates the world and then places people in it. In the new creation, he's creating the people and then he will place the people into the new creation, right? That's what he's doing. So in 2 Corinthians 5, right, he says, we are a new creation. So we are being transformed into an image, right? And again, this is Genesis 1 language. God created man in his own image. That is, we are created to reflect his glory in the world, but our sin has ruined that ability. So as we look forward to this full consummation of the kingdom of God, we know that we are being recreated in the image of God. And then notice as well, this is, I think, encouraging for sanctification. Do you struggle with sin still? Yeah, everybody should be nodding their head, or you're nodding off. (laughs) Yes, you struggle with sin still, but notice what he says. It's from one degree of glory to another. It's a slow lifetime process where we're being made more and more into the image of Christ. And this, notice the last phrase in verse 18, this isn't a work that we have to conjure up. It's a work that the Spirit does in it. We don't transform ourselves by our power or effort. It's a work of the Spirit. So by the Spirit, we put the death, the deeds of the flesh, as Paul will say in Romans 8. The Spirit produces His fruit in us in Galatians 5. And so we keep in step with the Spirit as he says later on in Galatians 5. I want to wrap up with just a few final thoughts. I know I'm going a little bit longer than Pastor Jess, but I have to preach a one-off message and give a lot more context than he does. And I thought about this. Some of his messages have been getting shorter. So if I go a little bit longer, then it balances all out 45 minutes or so. Just a couple of final thoughts, because I think... If, if there's an application or an exhortation or maybe a question that comes to your mind, it's this. I struggle with transformation in my own heart and life. I, the battle is, is there. Transformation is what everybody seeks. Our culture seeks it, right? We are deeply dissatisfied with ourselves and we're always seeking transformation. Self-help, uh, sexual identity, uh, physical fitness. We're always seeking to transform ourselves in some way. 
And in one sense, our dissatisfaction with ourself and our sense that there's something better is an innate desire from God. But the problem is, is we're always looking to the wrong things to transform ourselves, right? We think that if we can, during the month of June, find our right sexual identity, well, then everything's good. We've transformed ourselves into the proper way of living. Now we'll know life to the fullest, but that's just another form of law. It only enslaves us to that and just keeps going and going and going and you can't ever meet its demands. As Christians, we know the only place where transformation can take place, and yet, right, we've just read that, beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that's how we're transformed, and yet so many of us feel stuck. We're discouraged and even tempted to give up. So why might Christians not be transforming as they wish? I have a couple of points here. First of all, you are. If you're a Christian, you're transforming. That should be an encouragement to you. You may go, I don't think I am. You are, right? There's a work of the Spirit of God indwelling you. What God has begun, he will bring to completion. Go read Philippians chapter one. Here's where you might need some help. You need other people to help you identify that sometimes, right? And say, no, I do see evidence of God's grace in your life. Be encouraged by this fact. And then you, you take that, not as all, well, by golly, I guess I am pretty good. I'm doing really, that's not what you, praise God for his grace. I don't see that evidence, but praise God he's working it in me. So you need others to help you see it. You need to, to have other people that you have spiritual relationships with and that can speak the truth of God's word into your life and say, I see this evidence. And also people who will say, you need a little spanking. Secondly, Christians may not be transforming as, our wish, as, as they wish because the law isn't exposing our sin. We just don't see our sin. Right? And this can happen for a number of reasons. We continually give ourselves over to sin. We eventually kind of cauterize certain parts of our hearts, so we become desensitized to it. Secondly, we're, we're not in God's Word as we should be. We're not asking the Spirit of God to shine the light of His Word into our hearts, into the deepest recesses and corners of our hearts. You know why we read God's law almost each week and then we pray a prayer of confession? Because that's what it's doing. We're saying, here's God's word and here's God's standard. Now let it shine its light into your heart. Or we're just not around God's people whose righteous life is an example and a rebuke to our unrighteousness. Finally, we may not be transforming as we could because we've accepted the world's assessment of our issues rather than God's. Right? The world will say, your sin and your problems is not your fault. Right? It may, somebody else did that to you. It's, you. it's not your fault. You're a victim or you were born that way. So why would you need to pursue personal spiritual transformation when you can't help doing the things you're doing? Not my fault. I guess I have one more. <laughs> we're not doing what we need to, and this is the last point, to avail ourselves of the means God has given to behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus. I don't want every sermon to be the same application, but it always kind of is, right? It's kind of always the same thing. What do we do? We pursue Jesus through the means he has given. Pastor Jess made the point a couple weeks ago, and I thought it was really important when he made the point that we emphasize daily time in God's word for each of us. But we don't do that as a pursuit of a checklist. 
We do it to pursue him as a relational manner. It's not how much you get through on a daily basis. Did I read my two or three chapters to get through the Bible in a year? But we pursue the Lord to know him in a, in a, in a relational manner. So we come with an attitude of humility. In faith, we ask God to do what he has promised to do. And then we do what he said. We ask the Lord to give us new desires and a desire to pursue him. We ask him to open his word to us and help us see Jesus. We ask him to show us areas of sin and remind us of the full forgiveness we have in him. In this way, we are transformed more and more into the image of our Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious new covenant that you have brought in Jesus. We praise you, Father, for giving us spiritual eyes to see and now grow our love for Jesus. Help us to behold him more and more, to be transformed more into his image, that we might, again, declare that this new age has come in Christ. The full forgiveness of sins is given in Jesus for all who will turn from their sin and trust in him. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.